Well, good morning, Gospel Hope. Good, good. Well, praise God for all of you and as well as uh, those of you who are visiting with us. Um, it is a pleasure, whether you are online or in person, to have you as our special guest. If this is your first time hanging out with Gospel Hope, would you put your hand up so we can just kind of show you some love? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We see you. We see you. That's awesome. So, hey, you have picked a wonderful Sunday uh, to be a first-time guest of Gospel Hope and here with the family uh, as we've been plowing through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we have landed at probably one of the most difficult texts in all of the Bible. And so, great. I'm glad you're here to witness this, what's going to happen. Um, pray that the Lord will be with me uh, uh, in the text the way that he is with Anna Payton on the viola. Amen. <laughs> I don't know if you guys saw that real quick, but I mean, I probably should be focused in worship, but I, I, can, I have a confession to make right here. So she was playing, she was playing, right? And so she already doesn't look, she's mastered the no look pass, right? But then there was just this moment, and I don't know why, I guess she just decided I'm going to give it to the children real quick and let them know who's on the viola, right? So she started playing with one hand. Did you guys miss that? You think I'm exaggerating? Where, where are you? Did, you? did you play with one hand? Put your hand up. You played with one hand. She, the other hand, she just checked her pulse, and she was just like this. Yup, put it in her pocket, you know. And then she was like, all right, let me just stop. You know, let's go ahead and get back with it. She did. She confessed. She said she played with one hand. You guys think I'm kidding. She did it. She did it. So, hey, man, not to embarrass you, I just, I'm blessed by you. I was like, I ain't never seen the one-handed viola. That is awesome. And so, man, I love it when God's spirit is in the room and his people get used in special ways. So pray that like uh, Anna on the viola, that I can get down on this text today, uh, like that. And y'all walk out and be like, whoo, I never heard that before, seen that with 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Amen. Uh, all jokes aside, we need the Lord's help um, this morning. And uh, just kind of roll the, the tape back for a moment. If you are visiting with us or a guest, please stop by um, uh, the Connect table and make sure we've, um, we've got a little something for you. We just want to show you some love and uh, get a little, know a little bit more about you. Amen. So uh, let's go before the Lord and ask for his help. Um, Father God, this morning we are, um, we're always needing, we always need your help. And uh, I love it when you peel back layers of self-sufficiency and make it all the more clear what has always been apparent to you. When you make it even more obvious to us to cause us to dig a little bit deeper in our dependency. And so Lord God, um, um, I thank you Lord God that uh, through today's text, you have rendered, um, you've rendered, and I won't say the scholars useless, but Lord God, uh, traditional theological education um, has some areas where it still does not fully know how to handle this text. Um, we who are not um, first century citizens of Corinth or who do not have this Lord God direct apostolic uh, plumb line or, or phone line to you, O oh God, uh, there's something about this text that uh, eludes many of us who are, have earnest hearts and well-trained minds and want to do well by the text, oh God, there's some things in here that elude us. And so, Lord God, but apart from all the things that elude us, I know that your word is given for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness so that we would be thoroughly furnished for every good work. So I know that this text is chock full of um, wonderful principles intended for today's church, things that have been captured for our learning for today's church as well, to help our hearts, Lord God, 
be more diligently committed to you and more uh, deeply, uh, not only committed, but also better equipped, Lord God, to serve one another and to serve uh, the surrounding world. So, Heavenly Father, uh, all that you intended for us today, Lord God, in this uh, diet from the word, would you give it? Uh, would you move me out of the way or whatever you need to do with me so that I serve as absolutely no distraction to the effective delivery of your truth and principles? Would you do that, please? Um, we need you. I pray, oh God, you do it on behalf uh, for your own glory, Lord God, for the exaltation of your son uh, and also, Lord God, for the edification of your people. We need you. Uh, and this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, heads up. Heads up is the title of today's message. And you probably heard that phrase before. Heads up. Right, because uh, uh, I don't know if you've uh, in any way in baseball world, if you've been out in any tournaments, it is a tradition that when a ball leaves the field of play, if somebody hits a ball foul and it's coming outside the lines into the audience or into the the, the areas where the spectators are sitting, we say heads up, right? And why do we have that tradition? Why do we have that? Because that tradition of saying heads up is intended to help all of those around to pick up their heads and to focus. If you're digging in your purse, if you're focused on your hot dog, if you're handling your children, or if you're, uh, I don't know, on your phone, and you hear the word heads up, that tradition alerts every single person, regardless of where that ball is, to at least look up and get focused so that you don't get hit. Then this tradition of saying heads up is intended for your good, even though we may not fully know you. We may have never met, but that tradition is a good thing. And traditions have that kind of intrinsic value. Most of the times, traditions are created to provide some kind of, of protection or promotion or preservation of something that is true. So like in the heads-up tradition in a, in a baseball uh, uh, field, uh, that tradition, while it's not magical, it is not truth, it's just a tradition. But that tradition, tradition is meant to safeguard the truth that human beings are valuable and we don't want them to get hurt. It's a tradition. Pastor Ryan just mentioned here at Gospel Hope Church, we have a tradition that when we read the God's word, we'll say, you know, this is the word of the Lord. And you say, why do we do that tradition? Not, it, it, that tradition doesn't make the word of God true. It doesn't make it God's word. But what it does is it helps our hearts be uh, more dialed in or more trained in on the fact that we should be gracious and have great gratitude that our God would give us his word. Many of us have traditions all over our lives. Uh, we have one in my household where we have a tradition where it's just technology and televisions off during dinner time. I want the full family to be on deck and at attention as we face one another at the table. But, but again, that tradition of turning off the TV and turning off technology doesn't make the dinner delicious. She does. But that tradition is intended to safeguard the truth of family communion. We want to commune together. Now, there are many different ways that we could accomplish this in our household, but this is a tradition that we have chosen. Traditions are, are, are throughout culture where we find it necessary, not because we don't have sufficient laws or principles or practices. We just need something extra, we feel like, to give us this reflex to focus on the right things. Traditions have value. The reason I, I, I say all this or stress this point is because today we're going to be looking at one of the more difficult traditions from the ancient world for us to kind of wrap our hearts and minds around and what exactly, what truth is being trained or what truth is, uh, uh, is on the table. What are they trying to really help us with? As I was working through this particular text, I was thinking about uh, when I first learned to ride a bike. Anybody remember that first time learning riding a bike? 
Anybody? Anybody? Okay, we got a lot of people. I know we got some new things going on in the world right now. Is, is bike riding no longer a, a, a skill? Um, okay, good. I, I remember learning to ride a bike, and um, uh, during the era when I rode a bike, um, we did not have the helmets, the knee pads, or the elbow pads. And therefore, every child was mortally terrified of falling down and busting their head, because uh, that was like one of the worst things that you could do. Parents would often warn you if you were going to jump off of something, you're going to bust your head, right? You, you don't want to bust your head. You don't want to skin up your knee, or you don't want to mess up your elbows, right? Because you was just going to, that's what's going to happen when you hit the asphalt. So you're learning to ride a bike. So that was one thing I remember from my childhood. And the second thing was I had a prejudice against training wheels. I thought they were for babies. Because training wheels, to me, just look too much like a tricycle. Why would I get on a big boy bike and then put these other sets of wheels on here? That's for babies. And so while trying to learn how to ride my bike, I refused to put on training wheels, and I had a big boy bike. And my dad, at this time, was a truck driver, so he wasn't home every single day. He might be home every three days or sometimes every four days, and it was very sporadic and intermittent. I didn't know when he was going to be there. So every time he would come home, uh, I, would, I was standing out there with my bike, and I'm like, huh, it's time. And so what we would do is he would hold the back of the seat because I refused to do the training wheel thing and just let me ride up and down the streets with uh, him holding the back of the seat. And I was just trying to catch it. And I'm like, man, he's holding it all to the side. And so I'm like, man, can you lean me that way? You know, and then I get him and say, man, can you lean back this way? And he's like, that's your job, right? You're the one who's supposed to be making all these leans. And so, 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 so the, the issue was I needed him to hold the seat because one of the primary issues with a new bike uh, a learner is you're trying to manage multiple things you've never managed before. You've got to steer, you've got to pedal, you've got to create momentum, and then you've got to keep your balance, right? And so because he wasn't able to be home that often, I had to come up with another strategy so I could practice regularly because I was not falling on the asphalt. My neighbor next door to me had a grassy hill in their backyard, had a nice little incline. It wasn't too steep, but it was just subtle enough to create some real momentum without having to try. And it was grassy. So what I figured I would do was take my bike to the top of the neighbor's backyard, and then I could just let the hill create my momentum, and I could focus my attentions on balance and steering. I'd deal with these pedals and brakes later, right? And so sure enough, I get in here, and boom, I'm going down the hill, and, and I finally figure it out. And I completely skipped the era of training wheels, learning how to ride the bike. This is awesome. But training wheels, in retrospect, are not bad. See, I believe that traditions are like training wheels. Traditions help us to keep from overcompensating in areas where we've not yet gained balance. Now, I want you to consider when I say imbalances are areas where we've not yet gained balance. Training wheels help us, or they, they train us in this way. Good traditions serve as training wheels for the truth. Good traditions serve as training wheels for the truth. Bad traditions almost try to substitute the truth, but good traditions serve as training wheels for the truth. Because what good traditions do is they allow us to focus on the main thing to keep our heads up so that I can ride the bike and develop a rhythm like, okay, this is what my feet and hands and head are supposed to be doing while this balance thing and this fear of falling on my left or right are completely being eliminated. That's what training wheels are intended to do. I believe that traditions have a similar function for us in the body of Christ as well as in regular everyday life. They keep us from having to overcompensate and to really focus on some of the main things. Now, for those of you that are just coming in uh, uh, as guests or those who may have just been intermittently following the series, there's some, we need to get a little bit of a running start when you understand what's happening within the Corinthian context. Remember from last week and previous weeks, 
These are people being saved from a whole host of ungodly lifestyles, things that you and I would never imagine are a part of the pre-Christian experience because we grow up in a land that takes advantage of laws and principles that even if you're not a believer in Jesus, at least some of the laws that we live by and the moral ethics that we live by still are fully reflective of the Christian life in many ways. Therefore, when one becomes a believer, it's not this total overhaul of your cultural perspective and just world view, right? Because many of us have been immersed in it. You may have been saved out of, you know, like a Catholic school or something where you weren't a believer, but you were at least fully immersed in Christian ideas and dogma. Not the case in Corinth. You're talking about people who, again, as I mentioned last week, would have largely uh, been saved out of human trafficking. Either they were the traffickers or they had been trafficked. Women who were being saved out of a lifestyle of temple prostitution. People whose careers and everything that they were a part of were very much uh, had at it. They were in orbit of a, of a whole town or a whole city of 700,000 people committed to evil and idolatry. This is what people were being saved out of. These people were first time or first-generation Christians. They did not come from Christian households because the gospel had just landed in Corinth. These were not people who at their dinner table and in their, in their schools or, at their, uh, or any other places that they might have regularly done life would have seen prayer and life and any type of worship or any type of focus on Jesus. First-generation Christians doing this life for the first time with no external patterns to draw from other than the life that God had pulled them from. And so that being the case, when they came together for worship, they still were people in the process of sanctification just like we are. And there was so much culture that came in with them, some of which was usable and some of which was not usable. And therefore, as the Apostle Paul, throughout the chapters of this book, chapter one was easy and they just increase in complexity and difficulty as you go forward. He is just working through various issues that are obviously indicative of them having brought some of the cultural fragrances with them into their Christian experience. And so when we arrive at chapter 11, there is obviously a situation happening within the Corinthian church where people are coming in and the traditions of head covering or what they're doing with their heads and what they're doing with their hair has become a, a point of contention. I want you to remember that all the things that we're looking at are surrounding what happens when people come together as a Corinthian congregation and how those various customs, traditions, attitudes, and postures are impacting the worship experience and the ability of all to be edified during the Sunday morning experience. Okay, are you with me? All right, so with that in mind, let us then uh, kind of open up by looking at uh, the, the first few verses. Verses 1 through 3 read as follows. This is very important. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I want to ask you that anything else that we read today, anything else that we discuss today, in the back of your mind or in the forefront of your mind, I want you to kind of sit it on that shelf. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That whatever it is that we're trying to extract, we are trying to become more like Jesus, right? So then, verse 2. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife uh, uh, is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. In these first two to three verses, before we ever get to the concept of head coverings, Paul wants to clear the air and lay down three fundamental truths that the training wheels may or may not be needed for. So here are the truths. 
So and then the question that we need to ask to help ourselves to keep us from, from, from bumping our heads on this text is this. What are the truths that are being trained here in the Corinthian church? And these are timeless truths that matter even to us. If you read that text carefully, it, it reveals the following. Everyone has a head except God the Father. Did you see that? God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of the wife. We also know in other places of the scripture that Christ is the head of the church. So even if you don't use this kind of language, this idea of someone being someone's head is not a unique, it's not a tradition, and it's not a, it's not a nuance to the human situation because even the Godhead appears to practice this. So everyone has a head except God the Father. There's a second truth visible in this passage, and that is no one with the head is seen as inferior to the head. No one with the head is seen as inferior to the head. Did you notice that? Well, if you did notice it, let's take a step back and look real quick. Is Jesus inferior to the Father? No, he's not inferior to the Father. As a matter of fact, the scriptures speak of him this way in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the worlds. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for our sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high having become much more superior to the angels as the name that he has is, he is inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son and today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This is the resume of the son. Does that sound like somebody that is demoted, deficient, or, or depressed? In any way. But then the Bible says that that very person who was just described for us, the father is his head. God the Father is his head. So, 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 so the Bible wants us to know that everyone has a head except for the Father. And no one with a head is considered to be inferior. Consider this pattern that you see throughout the scripture. Not only is God the Father considered to be the head of the Son, but we also, when we hear Jesus introduce us to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which will take place upon his ascension after his resurrection, Jesus said this about the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, verses 13 through 15, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth, for he will not seek his own, speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will, um, he will take what is mine and declare it to you, and all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus then describes the Holy Spirit who we know in Christendom to be just as much God as the Father as well as the Son, but yet the Spirit will not testify of himself. He will defer to the Son. So the Godhead has figured out somehow how to have headship and deference and, refer and, and, and reverence amongst them and honor amongst them and it not be confusing. Nobody's getting their head bumped. Nobody has to say heads up in the Godhead. Why? Because they're not fallen. So they're not bringing selfish ideas into this idea of how they work together. So, so everyone has a head except for the Father. No one with a head is considered to be inferior. Look further at the, at the dynamic between Christ and the church and also this beautiful mystery between husband and wife in marriage as the Lord allows us to look at them through the same prism in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 25. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, as, his, as himself, and, excuse me, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to the Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So then you read this text once again, Christ is the head of the church. And then you, let's ask yourself, okay, so if Christ is the head of the church, but the church must submit to the Christ, let me ask you this. Which one, who is worth more? Who is worth more? Soak in that for a minute. Who's more valuable? Because the, if, the, if the son is more valuable, he gives himself up for the church. So this becomes an attestation of the value of the church. So, so from the Godhead down to the church and right on down into marriage, God is constantly saying, don't bump your head on this idea of headship. There is, a, there is a differentiation in function that does not mean a reduction in value. A differentiation in function does not equal a reduction in value. And it's beautiful how he, 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 he lays this out here first before he begins to wade in the, the choppy waters. Well, maybe not choppy for him, but choppy waters for us. But first, if we can grab hold of this, that headship is differentiation in function and not a reduction in value. Because we see a model between the Father and the Son, between the Son and the Spirit, between the, between the Son, between the Christ and the church, and between the husband and the wife. Now, just soak in this for just a moment. What happens to a marriage when it loses the beautiful imagery of the gospel? When the imagery and overlay and the template of the gospel where Christ is dying for the church and the church is submitting to the Christ, when you rip that away from the conversation of marriage, marriage becomes this competitive chaos where we're trying to come up with all kinds of secular equations to determine who's in the driver's seat and who gets to make the most money and who's worth the more and who should be staying home with the kids. You see how all of that gets wonky and warped? The moment that you rip the gospel overlay away, this isn't about gender roles. I'm just saying, but, but see how junky marriage gets? And I'm not suggesting that, that, that marriages outside of Christ aren't real marriages. What I'm saying is, but the moment that marriage uh, lives up to its gospel-centered model, it is this beautiful romance of roles that says something so much bigger than our relationship that allows us to serve beautifully because we know that it is bigger than just this business we wanted to create or this mansion we wanted to build or this statement we wanted to make to all the people when we go back to our high school and college reunions. And so headship is differentiation and function, not reduction in value. This is key to hold on to. There's a second question that we need to answer. The first one is what truths are being trained in Corinth? The second question that's going to help us work through the text today is this. How is tradition either helping or hurting correct some of the Corinthian imbalances? How is tradition either helping or hurting the Corinthian church correct some of its imbalances? So what are some of the imbalances in Corinth? I've already explained to you the very sordid uh, uh, variety of, out of which people would have been saved. But one of the ideas is that many of the women during this time would have, uh, in their new liberty in Christ, where there is no longer uh, slave nor free, Jew, Greek, male, female, there's none of those things, right, in Christ in terms of the grace of God and how it works. As they sought to exercise that grace, some were obviously coming into the worship context with their heads either short or uncovered, hair shaved or, or short or uncovered, which would have been emblematic of some of the attitudes from the women who used to work prostitution around the temple of Aphrodite. So here it is, a young woman may have been coming in, 
just trying to express the freedom in Christ, but really may have been sinning to all, saying, saying to all the men behind her, oh, she, um, she worked for Aphrodite now? May have been sending a mixed signal. Or may have been sending a signal that, hey, this is a repudiation against my, my, my husband's uh, headship or covering in my life. It could have been saying a, a variety of different things, but it was, a, it was a cultural custom of either the head being uncovered or the hair being shaved or, or the head being cut close that somehow was indicative of something that was, would, have, would have been distracting within the Sunday morning gathering context. Does that make sense? Yeah, this is where the, yeah, the water's starting to get choppy, right? But women weren't the only one who had this. Men also. Men who often idolized some of the Greek philosophers and one of their uh, outward appearance, one of the outward aspects of the, the smart dudes, the, the guys who really had it together, was they had extremely long hair. So that's why Paul begins to talk about even for a man, didn't know that it is a shame for his hair to be long? Right? So if it's a shame for hair to be long, I don't know, I don't know what the, the polar <laughs> opposite inverse is, but your boy is there. But again, these traditions that have been imported from the outside perspective were creating a collision and some distractions within the Sunday context. Also, within the Jewish custom, this idea of covering one's head or showing some kind of reverence or deference when, in the, when, when encountering what would one consider to be an angelic creature or someone of superior, or whatever you want to call it, not superior, but someone of, of great honor. There, there, was, there was even cultural customs there, and so you would have had a multicultural church consisting of both Jewish and Gentile, majority Gentile people that were there. And so can you imagine the very, uh, I don't know, cosmopolitan or the very multicultural, just a series of customs, and people are looking around going, where is he or she from? What are they trying to say? What are they trying to do rather than looking up here and hearing gospel? And so these are some of the imbalances. So then what else is happening within the Corinthian church? Newfound freedom. Hey, I'm free. I'm in Christ. I'm one. I'm in Christ. Christ is my new identity. And so for men and women who may have said, okay, this is my newfound identity in Christ, the overcorrection, leaning way too far to the side of their freedom, to try to demonstrate that they are no longer in bondage and no longer part of that lifestyle, leaning way too far, would have also created an issue. And so here comes some tradition. Here comes some tradition to help them not overcompensate. Let's focus more directly on verses 4 and 5. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. These ideas of honor and dishonor don't land readily with us because we don't live in an honor-based culture. We live in a um, uh, right versus wrong, justification versus unjustified society. Those are, those are kind of the conversations, right, based on the, the nature of our constitution, right? We don't, we don't have the honor concept where, you know, uh, again, we do have honor concepts. And so here's a, little, here's a few pockets of where we have honor concepts in our culture. What to do when you hear the nation's anthem, right? You, that whole collision of opinions is because we live in a, in a culture that is like, this is something is right or wrong, but then we have these other emblems that are based on honor and dishonor. And so there, there's a community where we're trying to mix together, man, is this not right or wrong? But that's how people in the ancient world would have viewed everything is through a honor versus dishonor lens. 
not just through the technicals of, 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 of right and wrong. And so, you know, for us, as a, when it comes to the, to, to the national anthem, we have an honor culture, the flag. When it comes to acts of chivalry, what are you supposed to do? I mean, roll the camera back or roll the tape back, even in our own country, just, you know, 40, 50 years. And when a woman enters the room, you know, men stand. Or if we're, we're in a situation where there's a, a, a women are standing and, 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 and there's no seat, men get up, right? Women, men open doors as a show of honor, and this isn't legal or illegal, righteous or unrighteous, but, the, but that honor culture is one where we say, man, something is amiss if men don't do these things, or something is amiss if women don't do these things. So we have flavors of the honor culture among us. I told a story in the previous service about how I was, I'd gotten off of a plane and was riding the Avis rent-a-car bus over to the pavilion where we get our rent-a-cars. Packed, jam-packed, people, standing room almost only. Some of us were sitting, and there was a woman who was standing in the middle, and she was right near me, and I was like, can't do it. I stood up, and I, I notioned that she should have my seat, and some dude just sat in it. <laughs> I'm like, man, you don't know the code. You're from a completely different culture. What are you doing? Was it right or wrong? Or is it just, it's just kind of, it's just, it's separate from the honor culture that we, that, that I came up under. How much more the Corinthian church would have been a hodgepodge of all these different gestures of how one honors and dishonors in different scenarios. So you see why it would have been necessary to try to come in and protect, if you will, or preserve some sense of order and honor and decorum within the, the Sunday morning gathering so that that wouldn't become a conversation piece as opposed to this being the primary conversation, the conversation of Christ. But even before we get there, I want you to note that in this passage of Scripture, one of the great imbalances of Corinthian culture gets corrected by the Holy Spirit. You see, did you notice that it says every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head? Before you get to what's happening with the head, did you see what was happening with the heart? Both prayers and prophecy are taking place between men and women. So what that tells you is that where the Holy Spirit has now come in and these folks are now walking in Christ, that women who for formerly would have been viewed as second-class citizens are now first-class Christians. And they're able to be first-class Christians without a competition between the sexes. They didn't have to try to overcome, get do, do harder, work harder, and be better. They, by the, by the grace of God, women and men are able to talk to God in prayer. It wasn't a special privilege unique to men. Women, obviously, with the proper decorum, could also properly uh, uh, prophesy. This is incredible. So the, the Spirit is work. The Spirit of the Lord is working uh, in, in both men and women. This is the first thing that I hope we will focus on. That's a fundamental point to remember because at the Jerusalem Council, when the Apostle Paul made his primary, his most forceful argument about the equality of Jews and Gentiles, he said. The Spirit of the Lord has fallen on them just like they did us. And these jokers spoke with tongues and they prophesied. And so if God, who knows the hearts of all men, will equally endue them, then they are equal to us. Because there was this disparity amongst Jews and Gentiles as to whether or not they were equal partners in the gospel. And so here it is. Paul kind of lets us know that this activity was happening within the context of the local church, and the issue wasn't grace or giftedness, the issue was honor and decorum. Is it happening in a way that doesn't produce distractions and disorderliness? And so, 
We see prayer and prophecy, the grace to talk to God and the gifts to serve the body being distributed amongst uh, men and women. Definitely in line with Galatians 3.27. May not have it on the screen, but you know what the text says, that in Christ is neither male nor female, right? Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. So the grace of God saturating both groups equally. This was a great cultural imbalance that needed to be corrected in Corinth based on the way women were treated. But so as a, as a, as a, as a young woman and man find themselves now as no longer second-class citizens in the body, but first-class citizens, th- does this mean that there should be some kind of running wild and we can do all things and be men too? No. So how do you do it in Christ and it not become some cultural competitive moment? This is where the tradition of head coverings helps. Even so, in our culture today, if this were a cruise ship and it would have hit an iceberg and it was about to go down and they tell us to run to the sides and get in the life rail, who get to go first? Women and children. We got some honor culture still left in us. We know these things. And guess what? We would be proud to die. Well, except for the guy on the, on the Avis bus. <laughs> We'd be proud to die to let our women and children survive. So honor culture is not dead even in the Western context, even though it is not the primary means through which we express honor for one another. Why do I mention all of this? Well, going back to Paul's original commendation in uh, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am imitators of Christ. Well, what is Christ? What does this have to do with me imitating Christ? Christ did not come to destroy culture, but to redeem its distortions. Christ did not come to destroy culture, but to redeem its distortions. I want you to note that if you follow the life of Jesus, he lived within the framework of the cultural customs of the day, unless those customs came into collision with truth. Jesus would, he would, he would fully follow the rules of the engagement when it came to culture, except it, if it told him, you can't talk to Gentiles, you can't talk to Samaritans, you can't talk to a, and share the gospel with a Syrophoenician woman. You can't go across the Gadarean Sea and share the gospel in a, in a, in a graveyard with a demon-possessed man. He didn't obey any customs that got in the way of the advancement of the gospel, but, but he did honor customs unless there was a collision between the tradition and the truth. We are called also not to try to destroy culture, but to redeem it as his people, redeem it from its distortions. And so there are some distortions in some traditions, but in this particular moment, Paul is not trying to destroy or disrupt culture, he's trying to redeem it from some of its destructions, some of its distortions. Some of those distortions are, again, trying to minimize the distinctions between men and women. There are distinctions that need to be honored and to try to minimize manipulation of those distinctions where one takes those distinctions and try to use them as a reason to rule in ways that are unrighteous over one another. Let's take a look at verses 6 through 12, the muddiest of the waters. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair um, or to shave her head, let her head, uh, excuse me, let her cover her head. For if a man ought not to cover her head, since he is not, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. Um, now, doesn't mean she wasn't made in the image of God. He just says that he, she is the glory of man. We're going to explain this in just a moment. Verse 8, for a man was not made from woman, but woman was made from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Deep pause and ooh. 
Now, we were all there in the Garden of Eden, both liter literarily because we've read it and theologically because we understand something about it. What is Paul saying, woman created for man? You remember when God created all things and he made man and he paused, he hadn't, and woman hadn't been created yet, hadn't been made, and he said, oh, this is good, but man, it's not good that man should be alone. In other words, man was not good enough as a solo practitioner in, in this call to both multiply and to dress and to keep the garden. So this idea of woman being made for man is not that he is made for man as some kind of tool or an apprentice or in a, as a handbag or some kind of subject. The woman is made for man in the sense that man cannot formally complete his full assignment without her. The woman completes. So I want to make sure that we didn't hear that purely with Western ears and curl up in our seats. This is why the wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. This is one of the obscure phrases. One of the reasons that this makes it a hard text is because Paul uses some language that is not found in other places in the Bible. And uh, as, as a Bible expositor and as students of the scripture for yourselves, when you're reading, one of the great ways that we extract meaning is by comparing it to when it was said in other places. And because this particular conversation is not reiterated exactly with another congregation, it's hard to, to, to have, you know, kind of meaning in stereo. Nevertheless, now here we go, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So no matter where the conversation started, here's where it ends. Man, all things are of God, and both genders are mutually dependent upon one another. And the point of the passage here is this, is that we maximize the glory of God when we minimize our self-serving liberties. We maximize the glory of God when we gather by minimizing self-serving liberties. Men who were coming into the Corinthian church, newly saved, donning long hair because it was indeed their liberty to do so. But when they found out that that liberty was a liability to someone who may have thought that they were in league with some of the philosophers, they should cover or they should cut or they should decease with that. Women who had shaved heads or unveiled heads, giving a nod potentially to the prostitutes of that day coming in, that is purely their liberty. But when it is found out that, man, this might be sending the wrong signal, the wrong message to the fellow brethren with which I'm worshiping, I need to curtail that behavior. Show of hands, how many of you might have something in the shelf, on your closet, or hanging in your closet, or something that you could very well put on and wear to this place? And it is not right or wrong, it's not raunchy or bad, but it is something that you would never wear here because of what it might, the, the signal, that, the mixed signal that it might send. The simple fact that you just won't have time to explain to every single person or safeguard the hearts and minds of every single person that might see you. I have a use. Therefore, you and I both know what it means to sometimes take personal liberties and privileges and curtail them for the benefit of others that we won't be a distraction. The call to men, what are you doing with the long hair? The call to women, what are you doing with the, with the shaved heads or the uncovered heads? The call to the congregation, adopt that order of service and an attitude of worship that creates no distractions or divisions. Adopt the posture, whatever you gotta do, adopt the posture that creates no divisions and no distractions. I have the unique and probably maybe to some of you odd benefit of being actually married to a woman who grew up in a faith tradition, a Christian faith tradition that actually practices head coverings, my wife, right? And uh, to this day, the church that our parents are part of uh, still practice said tradition. And when we visit that church, 
uh, I, I and she have absolutely no problem with Carrie wearing a head covering. Theologically, I'm at a different place. Convictionally, I'm at a different place. I could probably stand out at the front porch and, and pass out a pamphlet, a several-page essay on why this isn't right. But what would be the point? Proving that I'm right when all we're doing is just visiting her parents and we just want to worship the Lord and not produce a distraction? Therefore, my wife and daughter will wear their head coverings when they go to that worship facility. So, it is not uncommon to all of us to make adjustments on behalf of others. Going back to this original call to be imitators of me as I am of Christ, when Paul says, men and women who have put on Christ, that's us, men and women who have put on Christ must also be committed to putting off conflicting cultural customs. Men and women who have put on Christ must also be committed to putting off conflicting cultural customs. Um, Verses 13 through 16. Not as sticky, but it's a good place. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Rhetorical question, well, not rhetorical, it's a question from Paul. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman uh, has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. And if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches. Now, the contention or the practice that he says we have no such in the churches, we don't have this practice of trying to debate like we out here at Mars Hill. We're not going to be in the parking lot debating in the churches. We, we, we want to pursue unity when it comes to how we come together on these issues. And so the question, I believe, naturally uh, extends from the text that we should be prepared to answer is this. Is Christianity socially repressive or simply reflective of the countercultural Christ mind? Is Christianity socially repressive or simply reflective of the countercultural Christ mind? If you feel like anything in this text today or anything that is taught within Christianity is socially repressive, trying to get you to hold back and curtail and trying to, to blemish or blunder or muzzle your personal sense of expression and your freedom of who you are, I would like to offer you a gentle walk through the scripture to look at none other than the person of Jesus. The first place I'd like for you to go, and you're going to write these texts down because they're not going to be on the screen. The first place I'd like for you to go is, or if you have your Bibles, is Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 51. This is a little depiction of Jesus at the age of 12. Jesus has gotten separated from his family on a journey from Jerusalem back home. His mother finds out after two or three days that he is no longer with them and he is not in the caravan with other family members. They then double back to Jerusalem only to find Jesus three days later sitting in the temple with the great theologians. And he is in there both asking questions and answering questions and people are amazed at his abilities. Jesus' mom comes to him and said, boy, where you been? We've been looking for you for three days. How could you do this to us? And Jesus' reply at the age of 12 was, do you not know that I have to be about my father's business? She's probably like, what father are you talking about? Joseph, you starting a carpentry thing over here in Jerusalem? We're going to outsource a franchise? But no, he was talking about his father. Do you know what that means? That means that Jesus, at the age of 12, was fully realized. He understood that he was the son of God, that he was deity. And if he was duking it out in the temple, that means that he was fully aware of the word of God and knew how to expound the scriptures at an expert level. This is Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 51. But the Bible says that Jesus, in all that self-awareness, fully realized deity 
incarnate deity at the age of 12. He knew it. It says that he submitted to his parents and went on with them. Why would Jesus do that? Because of all of the moxie and the power and the potential that was fully described for us in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. That was still fully in effect at the age of 12, and Jesus knew it. And he chose to curtail that and obey his parents because he knew the scripture said, honor thy father and thy mother. Is this making sense to you that even Jesus, who is the head of all things, found it necessary to come under the leadership of his parents? He found it necessary that, to, that he could curtail personal power, potential, and freedom. It would have been fully in his right to just say, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You know who I am? Look at Jesus at the age of 30. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, he comes over the hill. John the Baptist sees him coming and already knows what's up. Behold, the Lamb of God, whose shoes I'm not worthy to unlatch. And Jesus was like, shh, because I need you to baptize me. He comes, up to John, he comes up to John the Baptist. John the Baptist goes, man, I can't baptize you. You're supposed to be baptizing me. Everybody know who you are. And Jesus says, look, man, do this that the scriptures might be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus, in all his self-realization, full potential and power, understood that he wanted to honor the prophetic tradition. This is what needs to be fulfilled based on what the prophets said. Even though the prophets can't speak without checking in with me. Jesus, fully realized potential, honors the prophetic tradition, doesn't try to buck against it. And he comes under the headship of John because John was the prophet de jour. He was the prophet of the day. Jesus, the age of 33, on the cross. Matthew chapter 27, verse 40. Jesus hanging on the cross, enduring insults left and right. People cutting up his vesture, his clothes, his outfit, his drip, his kingly, his kingly clothing. People cutting up his robe and sharing it amongst them, casting lots or rolling dice to see who was going to get Jesus' robes, Jesus being spat upon, punched in the face, having a thorn of crowns pressed into his head, and then to cap it off, people's like, hey man, I thought you was the king of kings. Why don't you come up off the cross? Do you realize that Jesus, the Jesus from Hebrews chapter 1, the Jesus from John 1, 1, do you realize that that Jesus could remove the nails from his hands and feet as easily as we remove the, 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 the what do you want, the toothpicks from hors d'oeuvres? He could have shot off the cross and jumped down and handled business. Rearranged the landscape, brought everybody to correction. But he chose to stay there, hang his head low, and die. Why? Because he didn't have potential? He didn't have power because he didn't have value? No, because he respected the headship of his father and the agenda for which he had been sent. Ladies and gentlemen, we can be imitators of Paul or we can be imitators of Christ in this beautiful and wonderful way because it is Jesus who typifies what it means to put my preferences, my liberties, and all those things on the, sh on the shelf in order to honor the headship of another. I know nobody in here is hung up on head coverings because we didn't pass any out when you walked in the building. But you may be wrestling with this idea of headship and all this kind of stuff. Look at Jesus and how he handles it. For some kind of reason, he sees a larger agenda than his own. He, he, he had all power. He had all ability. He had great and wonderful potential. And to surrender that, why? For the sake of the salvation of others. At the crux of the gospel is a Jesus who says that flexing my potential and showing people what I'm fully capable of isn't worth sacrificing your salvation. 
He put it on the shelf for you. So if Jesus would put his full potential on the shelf, if he would humble himself for you and I, the, 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 the sacrifice of Jesus Christ isn't just substitutionary, it's voluntary. He wasn't forced. Every step of the way as he was arrested, he could have broke free. Every step of the way as he was tried, he could have broke free. He said, I could marshal an army of legions and fix this situation. But no, he surrendered potential, power, and prowess. Why do I share all this? Because every single one of us, men and women, we have liberties given to us by our culture. But will we move in such a way that they don't become liabilities to others hearing a clear gospel? echo through our lives? Will we leverage those liberties in such a way that when they see our great humility and they ask, why do you submit in that way? Why do you surrender in that way? Why do you choose to do things that way? We now have a tradition or we now have a custom. We now have an attitude that gives us a great opportunity to talk about the ultimate attitude of Christ. And that's what we want to be the template for our lives. Can we pray? Father, in the name of Jesus, we're thankful to you this day. While we may not have checked all the boxes on this interesting concept of head coverings, one thing we do know is that Jesus is the head of the body and that you are the head of Christ. And that as our head, O oh Lord, that you, you love us as your body. You lay down your life for us as your body. And you ask us to be imitators of you. So Lord God, in our respective spaces in life, would you show us where we need to lay down some of our liberties that are fully granted to us by the culture out of which we come, that we might serve others for the sake of the kingdom? Would you help us, Jesus? Would you help us in any area of my life where, my, where, where, where I want to showcase what I'm fully capable of and my, my max potential? I want people to see it and know it and treat me in a certain way based on what I, what I can do. Lord God, would you, would you just remind me in the spaces of life where I need to curtail that, where I need to veil my, my, my best doings, where I need to veil some of my glory so that my glory doesn't get in the way of your glory. Lord God, can you show me the areas of my life where I need to do that? Help us, O oh Jesus, to become models of you, to become imitators, O oh Lord in the culture around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.